evening and welcome to Dig This. My name is Tom Levy from the Department of Anthropology here at the University of California, San Diego. Tonight we're having our second discussion about biblical archaeology, and I'm especially pleased to welcome Professor David Noel Friedman. Welcome, Noel. It's great to have you here. Nice to be here. Noel is the endowed chair for biblical studies here at uh, UCSD. And um, tonight we'll be discussing different dimensions of the Bible and archaeology. Noel, um, one of your fortes is publishing, and um, you have been a powerhouse in bringing uh, biblical studies to the world community, and that's through um, the Anchor Bible series. Could you tell us about that series? Uh, officially, it's called the Anchor Bible Project. And it has three parts. Uh, the main part is the commentary series in which we have at least one volume for every book of the uh, whole Bible that includes the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, also the New Testament, and the Apocrypha. So right now we're running about 90 volumes and we're about 90% done. And uh, that's the first section, and that is a, an introduction, translation, and uh, notes about every word of the Bible. Second is the Anchor Bible Reference Library, which is to fill in all the interstices between the commentaries. It's a lot of repetition here but it's uh, reorganizing the material in a whole variety of ways. And there are approximately 30 of these books already in print. What, what would be an example of one of those? For example, we have... Um, uh, there are quite a few of them, but there's a series, for example, on the archaeology of the lands of the Bible. And the first volume was done by Ami Mazar in Israel, and the second volume by Ephraim Stern, also in Israel. And the third volume is being written now by Eric Myers, professor at uh, Duke University in North Carolina. So that's, uh, but a whole variety of books, no specific uh, uh, determination depends on the author. And uh, both of these are open-ended because uh, with the commentaries, as we finish the first round, we already started on a second round. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> with the uh, reference library, anybody comes up with an idea, all, always welcome. The third part is the one thing that's finished. That's the Anchor Bible Dictionary, which is really an encyclopedia in six large volumes, seven and a half million words. This appeared in 1992 and remains the standard reference uh, on all topics. What I uh, call it really is alphabetizing the rest of the Anchor Bible Project. Now you can find everything under the proper letter. So how many uh, entries does that... About, um, I think it's a little over 6,000 entries, 
and approximately a thousand contributors, which means that we got everybody who's anybody in the field to uh, contribute to this uh, uh, dictionary. And you, you've personally uh, initiated this project uh, over, is it over 50 not, years not, ago? Not quite. It's uh, 1956, uh -huh. so it's uh, 46 years ago. The project was started by uh, Professor, the famous William Foxwell Albright, who was my own teacher and uh, who was approached by Doubleday about this. And he, uh, exercising his professorial authority, uh, essentially turned the project over to me because uh, he was busy with other things. Well, he must have thought very highly of you. Well, at the time, uh, I was already the editor of the Journal of Biblical Literature, so uh, uh, he felt that uh, if anybody could handle this, I could. Now, you, uh, you've had some of your own field experience in archaeology. Uh, I believe you worked at Ashdod. Yes. What, what, what is the importance of archaeology for the study of the Bible? Well, uh, I'm s simply repeating what other people say, but the experience for me was uh, a feeling for reality. And this is why uh, I'm not in the school in the uh, category of the minimalists. Been over there, there are actually things in the ground, and you know that people live there, they did things, and uh, while the records are relatively scanty, uh, I guess they were too busy uh, not writing things. And uh, the result is that there is still a big gap between uh, what we find archaeologically and what is written in the Bible. But the basic feeling is uh, the Bible is about real people who lived in real time and did real things. And if you're uh, persistent enough and patient enough and also uh, uh, wise enough, uh, you can make the things fit together. Could there be a, uh, a discipline of biblical studies without archaeology? Would it be meaningful? Well, uh, quite a few people have thought so in the past, and I'm sorry to say continue to think so. And uh, I, I lean a little that way myself. Uh, what I say about the Bible is it's all there, but you really have to look hard uh, to find it. And uh, it's possible to study the Bible without archaeology, and it's possible to do archaeology without the Bible. But I think the, the two disciplines enrich each other and uh, pose a lot of problems and challenges. Uh, but after all, that's why we're in this. Could you be a, uh, a good biblical scholar without mastering the ancient languages of the, uh, of the Near East? Uh, well, there's no, no question that uh, uh, the primary requirement for studying the Hebrew Bible is to learn biblical Hebrew. Uh, about that I don't think there's any doubt. And it's certainly important, valuable, to uh, be sufficiently familiar with related languages, especially Aramaic, because it also occurs in the Bible, uh, but to know enough to be able to sort out uh, what the real experts uh, have to say. Uh, very important. Now, earlier you mentioned the minimalist. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about 
what the conflict is between, say, this, uh, people that are interested in the history of the Bible and the so-called minimalists? Well, uh, <clears throat> we all have uh, our reactions and feelings about this, and to tell the truth, I'm not uh, deeply involved because, uh, to me, uh, it's uh, kind of a dead end. That uh, uh, what minimalists give them some credit, I think they're honest, decent people, but uh, uh, they apply standards of proof uh, that uh, are probably more uh, uh, strict uh, even than we do in our courtrooms. In other words, uh, it's possible to challenge almost anything in the Bible because the people who wrote it uh, weren't up on uh, scientific methods and the uh, the level of uh, doubt. And I would agree we must deal with what's reasonable, what's probable, and in very few cases can we determine absolutely that this happened or so-and-so said this, did this. Uh, but I think you can strike a balance. Now, the minimalists that you know of, are they at home with uh, Biblical Hebrew, for example? Are they qualified, most of them, or do some of them are, are not so qualified? Well, it's hard to say, and uh, everybody has their own opinion of colleagues and uh, uh, critics and so on. And uh, I, for one, don't challenge the... Uh, uh, qualifications, uh, linguistic, and in some cases historical and uh, archaeological, um, of uh, the major minimalists. I don't think that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been instrumental in dating uh, or in analyzing some of the earliest poems in the Hebrew Bible. Could you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, well, which ones? I'm an authentic troglodyte. Uh, I actually believe that there is uh, historical information in the Bible, uh, not only uh, back to the time of David, for example, uh, but earlier in the period of the Judges. I think Moses was a historical figure, and uh, uh, I kind of hesitate to say it, but I believe that even traditions about the patriarchs have uh, historical value. So I'm at the other extreme. Uh, in other words, what I say is, if there is no obvious objective reason against it, I take the Bible at face value. Uh, others would say, unless there is absolute non-biblical proof, I won't believe it. But surely you don't mean uh, you accept the miracles that are mentioned. You, what, no, what? I'm, I'm talking about what's reasonable. Yes. And... Uh, <clears throat> Miracles, separate category, uh, where I think it's better to be agnostic rather than uh, uh, automatically uh, against. Uh, a lot of things happen we don't know. But back to the poems. Yes. I believe, and I got this chiefly from my teacher, Albright, uh, that the earliest literature, and usually oral, is uh, found, preserved, in poetic form 
chiefly because poetry is easier to memorize and uh, it's associated with music and therefore uh, it becomes part of the tradition and can be preserved essentially intact for many centuries before anybody even thinks of writing it down and embedded in the prose narratives of the primary history. It's a designation I apply to the first nine books of the Hebrew Bible, which tell a single continuous story. But embedded in this are a half a dozen uh, poems. And it was part of the tradition at Johns Hopkins where I studied that these poems uh, were early and old and offered the best information about the earliest periods of Israelite uh, existence. Now, those poems would be the Song of the Sea, the now, Song of Deborah, the, and which are the well, others? Well, the uh, blessings of Jacob in Genesis 49 and of Moses in Deuteronomy 33. Uh, and in addition to the Song of the Sea, Exodus 15, and the Song of Deborah, Judges 5, we have the oracles of Balaam in Numbers 23 and 24. There are four of these. And the so-called Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. They constitute a corpus of uh, poems attributed to the ancient heroes. And in my judgment, Albright's judgment, uh, they were uh, among the earliest uh, uh, documents, the earliest literary remains, the whole Hebrew Bible. Now, what dates are we talking about? Well, uh, <clears throat> start with the Song of the Sea, mm -hmm. and I think it contains historical information. Well, just tell us, the Song of the Sea is about? 12th century. And what's it about? Oh, the Song of the Sea is the famous victory at the sea when the Israelites crossed on dry ground and the G Egyptians following in their chariots were drowned in this resurgent sea that overwhelmed them after the Israelites escaped. I saw a movie like that. Yeah, right. I, <laughs> to be the national anthem and to be the celebration of a great victory doesn't make the Israelites look that good. They didn't have a hand in it. All they did was flee. <laughs> but object lesson, the Bible is not about the glorification of Israel. It's about the glorification of the God of Israel and the proper relationship between them, which is God is the boss, he's the total control, and the Israelites, when they're smart, they do as they're told. So... You date them to around the 11th century? No, no. The poem, mm -hmm. I think, is contemporary with the event. Okay. In other words, Moses' feet were barely dry when he gave this talk. Now, whether Moses did it or somebody did it for him, we will never know, but I follow the tradition here. And that would be around 12th? Middle, middle of, the third, of the 12th century. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the Exodus should be dated in the time of Ramses III. And give us the exact, I mean, his, dates. His dates uh, the reign from about 1184 uh, for about 30 years or so down to 1154. 
What's the earliest archaeological evidence for Israel that we know of? Well, this is uh, even earlier than that. We have an inscription from the uh, Pharaoh Marnipta, who was one of the many sons of uh, the most famous of them all, Ramses II. And his dates, Marnipta, right around 1200, a few years earlier. And this inscription mentions, has the name Israel on it, first time ever, and it uh, places Israel in uh, the Holy Land, in Canaan, somewhere. And that, that inscription, I believe, was found by Sir Flinders Petrie in the late 19th century. So that thing has been around, known long to time. biblical... Oh, absolutely. Uh, for a long time. I agree. And um, uh, the problem is, what Israel is this? Where are they? What are they doing? Uh, because all Manipta says is he killed them. He uh, defeated them. And uh, uh, an indication that they haven't been there all that long is that uh, it's called a people not a country, the, in that the might, hieroglyphics. That might reflect to them being a, a tribal people and not an established state or something. Yeah, that uh, they've, uh, they haven't been there a, gr a long time. But uh, I think that it fits into the biblical tradition and that uh, I even connect the Marnipta inscription with uh, the blessing of Jacob. How, how do you do that? Well... In the blessing on Joseph, there is this violent confrontation. But in Genesis 49, it doesn't say who the enemy is. But I think it could well be the Egyptians. Mm. And that this is the occasion. And that the Joseph tribes are already uh, somewhere in that uh, area. Now, you mentioned the oracle of Balaam. Balaam in English. Um, I believe there was some archaeological evidence uh, fairly early in the in the record in Jordan. They they found this inscription. Do you, are you familiar with that? Uh, not, in, not directly, is there? But uh, they they I believe they did find in a seventh century context. Oh yeah, about Balaam himself. Yeah. I see. No, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. That's very important. It's, a, it's one of the few literary inscriptions mm -hmm. which is written on the walls of what probably was a temple, I believe, at Deir Allah. In the, in the Jordan, Jordan Valley. Valley. Ha, have and you actually seen the inscription? I've never been there uh -huh. to that particular site. Mm -hmm. But uh, the inscriptions were uh, uh, taken away, weren't they? Yeah. They're not there. Yeah. And um, uh, the inscriptions... Uh, describe this person, Balaam, in terms that are very much like the biblical terms. So these are separate traditions, uh, and the Bible, uh, at the latest, the date would be about the same. The biblical traditions were recorded probably in the 9th, 8th centuries BCE, and the uh, inscriptions from Deral are about the same, and they point back uh, to a uh, figure uh, who is dated in the time of Moses in the Bible. And there's no reason to doubt uh, that this is the same person because he serves in the same capacity. He is a seer, a uh, prophet, 
uh, some kind of a religious figure who acts as a mediator uh, between, in the inscriptions, uh, there are a number of gods, quite a number. Uh, in the Bible, there's only one. Uh, but there's enough to show in the Bible that um, uh, Balaam uh, serves other gods. But in he, the Bible, he a, he's a forced... Talking, uh donkey. And, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of interesting material here. But in this case, Balaam is forced to act as a representative of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And uh, naturally, the inscriptions, Derala, don't mention anything like this. Uh, but we can see a context here that would make a place for the biblical stories and put them back in that period. What does it mean that Yahweh was the God of Israel? Well, we have uh, uh, the story goes back to Moses. Mm -hmm. In other words, not only does he identify himself when he speaks to Moses as the God of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, God whose name was El, but he says that he, this is his name. Moses asks him uh, what his name is because he's been told to go back and tell the Israelites it's time to get out of Egypt. Well, uh, this God gives him a name. And as far as we can tell, this is introduced into the Bible at this point. And that's a tradition from the Sinai, is that correct? Yeah. And that links ancient Israel to this whole desert tradition. And the uh, poems that I mentioned do the same. They show that... Uh, the religion of Israel is defined as Yahwism, as uh, is uh, uh, born in the desert. Yep. Now there are other biblical scholars that don't think that that ancient Israel has a desert tradition; that they emerged out of the Canaanite towns and revolted against the Canaanite overlords, and 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 the whole idea of the desert tradition isn't doesn't reflect reality. Yeah, well, so you would argue against that? Yeah, I, I would uh, try to find a compromise position because there's no doubt there are strong Canaanite connections. Hebrew is a Canaanite language, not a question. And the people, when they deal with the Canaanites, uh, doesn't reflect any great difference in uh, ethnic status. Uh, but... I believe that the desert tradition is uh, central, basic to the Bible, and you just have to... Uh, I solve the problem uh, like Solomon uh, divide. In other words, I don't believe that all the Israelites were in Egypt or went out of Egypt. I think some of them were already in the land of Canaan and that they reunited that this was the major project or the uh, objective of the Exodus, was to get back to the people whom they, with whom they had been associated before. Uh, and I think that that's exactly what was accomplished. Now, as a biblical scholar, you, you've mentioned the Merneptah Stele, and I'm wondering what do you think are the most important archaeological benchmarks that, that help biblical studies? Well, we, we put them in two categories, uh, written and unwritten. Mm -hmm. 
and the proportion is in inverse proportion to the value. We're always looking for something in writing. That may reflect the older literary idea that the Bible is writing and it's nice to find inscriptions. Unfortunately, uh, Israel has been very sparse in producing inscriptions, so it's been necessary, invaluable to study the pottery, the dirt layers, all these. But when an inscription comes along, it's extremely helpful. So beginning with Marnipta, there are a bunch of other inscriptions and a little detour since it, uh, I was at the Ashdod dig when they found what I think is still the only uh, royal Assyrian inscription ever found in Israel in three or four different parts and uh, sensational. What, what did it say? Well, it was uh, an inscription, no doubt, put there by Sargon II of Assyria uh, to commemorate the conquest, the capture of the city of Ashdod, which, by the way, is reported in the Bible. And uh, I'm not sure exactly about the date, but in Isaiah chapter 20, he refers to it. Mm -hmm. And this is during the reign of Sargon, maybe around 714, 712 uh, BCE. But it fits perfectly. And uh, we get information from the Bible that we don't get from the inscription, namely that Sargon himself wasn't there. It was his uh, Tartanu, his uh, uh, general, who captured the city of Ashdod. And this was in preparation for uh, further uh, activity ending in the siege of Jerusalem by Sargon's successor, uh, Sennacherib. But that's a wonderful, that's wonderful illustration of how archaeology and the Bible interface. I think so. Always have. And uh, more recently, there's been this equally sensational discovery of the uh, royal inscription at Tel Dan. Right. We and have... Came, uh, came, at a, came at a very good time. Act unbelievable. Just after some of the minimalists had questioned the existence of David and his dynasty, here is an inscription from the ninth century, within a hundred years of uh, David himself, uh, talking about the house of David. So you don't think it's a forgery? Well, uh, there are only one or two people in the whole world who could make a forgery that good, and I can assure you, this is no forgery. Well, um, Noel, Professor Friedman, thank you so much for being with us. And I'd like to thank our audience for being with us on Dig This. My name's Tom Levy, and we'll see you again shortly.